Welcome back to the Monica Matthews Show. Today is Monday, January the 16th, 2023. We're halfway through the first month of the year. Welcome. Tonight is my Twitter space. Uh, First part, first episode of uh, Risk Factor, Why COVID Was Made. Right? You don't want to miss this. It's talking about bioweapons and uh, and pandemics. So so here's the deal. We're going to get right into this. I'm going to go straight into my Twitter space. We had fantastic guests today. I want to thank you all for joining me. We did have some glitches, so we put it all together for you. Thank you for sharing this work. Uh, it's going to allow you to have different pieces of the puzzle of COVID out on your table, and you guys can continue to put this together throughout the next five episodes that we will launch. Our next show will be this Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Twitter. Uh, God willing, and the creek doesn't rise, and we don't get booted like we did today. Um, but please make sure that you share this information far and wide. You can draw your own conclusions. Um, there are some reading between the lines here. There's also some, you know, it's very easy reading, to be honest with you. And this is information you're not going to receive anywhere else. Speaking of information you're not going to receive from uh, most people, especially your portfolio managers, please make sure you're going to monicaprotectswithgold.com. That is monicaprotectswithgold.com. Congratulations to those of you in my audience family who have actually moved portions of your retirement savings Roth IRAs over into precious metals. Congrats. High five. I know you guys are sleeping better at night because you told me that you are, and you're no longer waking up to drop after drop after drop after drop, up to 35% of your entire retirement portfolio gone. There's a way to circumvent that. It's called hedging, right? We're not here trying to get rich quick. That's not what we do. And I'm not a financial advisor, but I am telling you that hedging is wise and wise with things that have uh, intrinsic value, right? Such as precious metals. So Monica protects with gold.com. Thank you for signing up for my newsletters as well. And Monica Matthews.com. And here we go. Look at all your beautiful faces. I love it. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, please retweet this space. You all know what to do. You know how to do it. You've been listening to my spaces for over two years, particularly on COVID. We've been kind of the underground railroad, if you would, um, here in my Twitter spaces and provided safe harbor. Huh. Uh, for those of you who are listening, um, provide a safe harbor to scientists and physicians, nurses, PAs, people who are fighting uh, for your life and for the lives of people around the globe. Um, And people would come in, and they're still coming in. Only now we actually have the luxury of freedom of speech, uh, or at least the illusion thereof, um, here on these Twitter spaces. All right, Colonel Hoffman, we have you, sir. Um, And I'm going to mute your mic for you so that I don't get feedback and no one else does. And then whenever you guys are ready to roll with speaking, simply unmute your mic, sir. Um, And then you're free to speak. So... All right, without further ado, let's get our party started. Um, so, Dr. Huff, I'm going to give the introductions, and then and then the floor is yours, and you roll with it. You good? So, sounds good. All right, excellent. I'm going to mute your mic as well. Well, no, you have to because you're a co-host. Thank you, sir. Okay, excellent. Here we go. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. 
Welcome to On Air with Monica Matthews. Thank you for sharing this space with the arrow at the top of your screen. You can share it to multiple multiple download mediums as well. Um, social media mediums, you can send it via direct message. You can also text your family members who are still completely in the dark around all things COVID. Um, please do so now. Thank you. Uh, today, we're going to kick off a six-part Twitter Spaces series titled Risk Factor, Why COVID Was Made. Today's episode is the intro to biowarfare and pandemics. I do welcome all my media colleagues, and I do ask that if you use any part of this Twitter space, that you honor a professional courtesy by crediting my Twitter space and my show, The Monica Matthews Show, and any speaker, please check for correct spelling of names. And and I do hope that you will use professional honor and courtesy and quote people accurately. Um, please welcome my co-host and special guest, former EcoHealth Alliance VP and senior scientist, Dr. Andrew Huff, author of his new book, The Truth About Wuhan, How I Uncovered the Biggest Lie in History. Uh, in response to Dr. Huff's professional observations, EcoHealth Alliance offered their own written statement, which I'll let you simply go figure out for yourself. But for legal purposes, I want to first start with a disclaimer that says that the views, data, and opinions expressed here today in this space do not necessarily reflect those of Clear Talk Media or me, your host, Monica Matthews. So full disclosure, like many of you, I am here to learn. I'm here to pull together the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle with no lid to the box to help us pull in the genesis of the proverbial global nuclear explosion directly responsible for failing economies, anemic impending food shortages, supply chain atrophy, global civil unrest, unprecedented uh, sudden deaths, loss of life and debilitating effects of injections, referred to as vaccines. Historical weaponization of global law enforcement and institutional silencing of dissenters and honest physicians, scientists, and media who have lost jobs, homes, families, reputation, sleep, and even their lives in their relentless pursuit to bring you the truth in a piece-by-piece puzzle frame. So today marks the day we begin to put all of those pieces of the puzzle together. It is the desire of Dr. Huff and our special guests today and throughout our six-part series to leave you with a clear and concise picture of the who, what, when, why, and how of what has undoubtedly changed the trajectory of humankind as we know it. Please also welcome our other guest, Colonel John T. Hoffman, United States Army retired, a senior research fellow at Food and Protection and Defense Institute. I didn't even know we had one of those, by the way. University of Minnesota. Colonel Hoffman is a senior research fellow with the Food Protection and Defense Institute, a U.S. Department of Homeland Security uh, Center of Excellence at University of Minnesota. Colonel Hoffman has extensive experience in developing, operating, hardening, and sustaining extensive cyber systems. With the recent growth in cyber attacks targeting our nation's critical infrastructures, including the food and agriculture sector, Colonel Hoffman has focused on protecting the nation's food supply chains from the impact of system disruptions, the cascading consequences of cyber attacks, and the reduction of vulnerability to such attacks. Prior to joining FPDI, Colonel Hoffman served as an advisor to the U.S. Department of Justice and as a post-9-11 appointee with the United States Department of Homeland Security. 
He previously served in the United States Army and military law enforcement, intelligence, and anti-terrorism roles. Also, please welcome Mr. Charles Rixey, uh, United States Marine Corps, WMD, SME, and open source intelligence analyst for Drastic, D-R-A-S-T-I-C, a global group of 20 scientists and researchers who have investigated the origins or who are investigating the origins of the COVID-19 his substack can be found at prometheusshrugged.substack.com. Also, some of you recognize the beautiful face up here in our panel, Texas Lindsay. She um, hosts remarkable spaces. Uh, if you're not following any of these folks, please do so. Uh, Lindsay is a communication strategist with a focus on medical whistleblowers. She's also serving the industries of science and technology. Her literary work can be found at texaslindsay.substack.com. Please also give my regular co-host, Tenfold Tricorn, a follow. Um, also in speaker position somewhere in here, I believe, I think I just heard him come up, is Christopher Marino, who is also one of my regular uh, co-hosts. And uh, without further ado, Dr. Huff, thank you so much for asking me to partner with you on this. I'm very excited. Um, yeah, it, the, the floor is yours, sir. Well, thank you so much for, for helping me host this and set this up. You know, my, my main goal here is to really help everyone understand how we got to this point today. I think, you know, with the world waking up to what, what happened, everyone sensing that this, there's more to this lab leak, it was all by design. And that's really sort of the, the, the point that I want, want people to make is that we actually created a whole infrastructure and system to play out exactly like it did. So unfortunately, Colonel Hoffman is having technical dif- difficulties. Colonel Hoffman was my mentor, actually, at the Food Protection and Defense Institute, and he introduced me to many of the, the leaders, the technocrats and bureaucrats across government agencies. So um, Charles and I, I guess we're going to have to, to be, uh, as they say in the Marine Corps, uh, Semper Gumby, always flexible, and execute in the military, we used to call it a fragmentation order. And I guess it will be the Andrew and Charles show until uh, Colonel Hoffman can get his uh, Twitter space working. So without further ado, uh, Charles, do you want to say hi? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I mean, I was already introduced, but I, I guess I, I kind of want to point out that uh, Andrew comes from a more of a science background or scientific perspective mine dealt with WMD from a uh, more on the front lines perspective and so I in a normal context he would have been the technical reach back he would have been the scientists that we would have been calling for expertise if we came across something that we didn't know or uh, unusual circumstance and I've all I've tried to do is kind of carry that with me as I just on my own independently started investigating the origin and then met up a, a group of people. And since almost everybody that I work with all the time are scientists, I, I, I try very hard to, to try to bridge the gap. So hopefully today I can do that. Um, I, sometimes it can be really technical, but... Uh, I try to wear two hats at the same time, so I'll, I'll be well, there. Well, Charles, don't sell yourself short. Short. I think you're brilliant. And I think we, a good way to start off this conversation is, so what happens after 
no one in terms of uh, biowarfare, bioterrorism. And can you ex- explain the relationship between that and, and what WMD is and maybe what uh, WMD is to the, the audience? Uh, well, um, WMD is just simply weapons of mass destruction. Um, the <clears throat> Ever since the 1960s, the United States does not um, maintain a stockpile of offensive biological or chemical weapons, and we only keep nuclear weapons as a last resort. Um, so all of the biological research that we do is officially biodefense or biodefensive in nature as opposed to offensive, and the difference being that the intent of the person who is doing the research, really, <clears throat> that's what they don't want you to say, but it's true, because in order to, to protect yourself, to learn how to protect yourself against something in, in a real-world environment, you have to have that agent or something very close to it. So, um, And <clears throat> they've kind of danced a very, very fine line, but September 11th really kind of changed that. I mean, actually, it was things that happened before September 11th as well. But but after September 11th, the 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 nation was kind of in shock, and then immediately after that, there were the anthrax attacks, and those those served as a way to a very good motivator to basically raise funding in those areas. And the, the real mistake I think that was made was, was that the next year they decided to, instead of keeping it all in the military, they reached out to the National Institutes of Health, to Anthony Fauci in particular, particular and he became like a civilian counterpart working with our biodefense um, system and after that um, well uh, things went downhill fast because as we learned time and again the one thing you really shouldn't do is mix um, uh, politics with defense any more than you absolutely have to and uh, that's, well I think we should see the result that was, that was really the genesis of everything that's happened now it's more complicated, but um, basically, if, if in order to have a reason to justify our existence, uh, it, it kind of creates this atmosphere where it's unhealthy. <laughs> oh, abso- and, um, absolutely! That's really that's really a big problem. So, so Colonel Hoffman, are you are you there? Yes, I'm here. Great. Well, so I. How much of uh, uh, Charles' response did you catch? No, I got it all. I was uh, I was able to listen. I would I would point out that uh, this actually goes back further. What's interesting is that in the early '90s we determined that the Russians, while they had signed the bio treaty, the bio weapons treaty, they had not adhered to it. In fact, they continued their research uh, into offensive bio weapons all through um, through the '80s. Uh, and even we're continuing it in the 90s, including some pretty ugly, uh, you know, viruses like smallpox and other things. And uh, 
that also gave rise to great concern in the WMD world about being prepared for bio. Um, that was one of the major drivers behind uh, DOD investing so much in the civil support teams at the state level to be able to provide detection. Just for and, chemicals. And for the audience, what year, what year time frame are you referring to? Well, the, the um, civil defense, the, the civil support teams that were created between the active army and uh, active military and the, and the, and the national guard was actually in the nineties that that was created. They were originally called raid teams and they, didn't like that name, so they changed it over to uh, um, civil support teams. But the discovery of the Russians uh, failing to comply happened at the beginning of the 90s. And once it was realized that that, you know, that capability was still being developed by a potential adversary, even though at that point in time we were cooperating with the Russians, the Soviet Union had fallen, um, you know, it was a pretty strong signal that we needed to have better preparation, better preparedness, both from the standpoint of detection but also the ability to continue to fight in a bio environment and be able to uh, respond to any kind of major bio event. That's really good. So what kind of things then do, you, do does a military or a population require to fight a biological warfare or respond to a bioterrorism event? So what are the things that the government would want uh, to, to be in a, have good defense posture? Well, you got to be able to detect it first. And part of our problem is we had not deployed sufficient capability. Some of you may remember uh, back in the very beginnings of Nun, uh, Nun Luger and then uh, PDD-63 when we had threatened um, bio kind of events. Um, the best thing that the military could provide us at that time was a thing called Smart Ticket, which basically would, would tell you that there was an organism, but it didn't whether it was a good good organism or bad organism, and police and fire were out responding to, you know, uh, letters of powder in them with smart thinking. And because it might be cayenne pepper, that's a, you know, a, a biological organism, it would give them a positive reading and everybody would react like it was uh, an actual threat. So realize this wasn't going to cut it. We needed better better capability. We needed things that could be deployed to the field. Well, how are you going to do that? So... That's where they came up with the idea of putting civil support teams together and equipping them with uh, sophisticated biodetection, not just chem detection, but biodetection in the field, including PCR, um, you know, detection laboratory capability right in the field. So if some event happened, you could go right away and begin to detect it. And we also began looking at uh, projects like BioWatch, which was to put uh, – Passive detectors. Uh, basically, what they were doing is, is collect air samples. Air samples would be policed up on some regular schedule from these detectors, and then it would go to the lab to see if there was any indication of something happening or presence of anything. So there were a lot of approaches being taken on the detection side. Well, at the same time, if you did have a deployment, you did detect that somebody had done something, how are you going to protect people? And that's when they started looking into the you know, different ways um, to develop very, very uh, rapid, you know, involvement ev of a vaccine that could counter it as quickly as possible. Um, whereas vaccines in the past have taken months to years to build. Let's just pick up right where we left off. Thank you. Oh man. Um, well, I guess we are basically at the point where uh, medical countermeasures uh, mean one thing to the military, and they mean something different in a civilian context when responding to an emergency. And so, um, 
and I, well, I think it's part of the problem with, with this technology. But, but really, so what we have to understand is is that what they wanted was to create a an ability to respond to something in an emergency in a far rapid time than you would normally have, um, and to try to prevent something from spreading or to get the damage as quickly as possible. Um, but I think, as you'll see, that in pretty much every way that it could go wrong, uh, this has gone wrong, um, and not necessarily by accident. So. Okay, so I think to, to help to continue this on, so with traditional vaccines or other drugs, how long does it take to typically manufacture those drugs? How long does it take to, to bring a new product to market? And, and what unique problem does that cause the national security community and the Department of Defense when responding to an event or actually trying to either either respond or prepare? Well, it, it, normally it takes 10 to 15 years Um and it's been getting progressively longer <clears throat> until the last few years. And obviously, when when you're trying to solve a, a, a new problem with a novel virus, it's not going to work. But to be honest, this this is something that all the military has across the different facets because their development time for new technologies is it was lagging far behind before we've entered this even further exponentially advancing technology period that we are. So uh, I I know that that was a big focus just before I left the Marine Corps, um, trying to focus on exp exponentially, being able to manage those exponential growth phases. And it, that was a struggle. So this is just another example of it. So, John, I think this is a good time for you to jump in. Can you tell everyone just real, real briefly um, about your how you came to work with the Department of Homeland Security after nine eleven? Sure, I um, I spent a good deal of time uh, um, both on active duty and in the guard working in this space for uh, WMD and anti-terrorism. Um, in the eighties, I worked primarily or began working primarily in the anti-terrorism function. Um, working both in Europe and in the United States. And then um, that actually led to a situation where I became involved in kind of investigating and then figuring out how we harden the supply chains for the U.S. military food system in Europe, the commissaries that feed both the families and the troops. When uh, Beider Meinhof, which was a um, Soviet-backed uh, yeah, terrorist actor in Germany, targeted the commissary in Frankfurt, a big military base, um, and this proved to be a bigger challenge than most people would think, because while most of our uh, shelf-stable food came from the United States, most of our fresh products and dairy products, meat, vegetables, those kinds of things, were all host nation or they were sourced somewhere in NATO. And these supply chains were not secure and they were fairly easy to uh, interdict or contaminate a food product. So this became a major area of concern for the military on how we harden those supply chains um, and how we protect them. And that led to writing new doctrine, if you will, uh, new military doctrine on uh, how you protect things in what's called a COMZ or the communication zone um, in a military theater. Um, a lot of that got recorded and, you know, documented in different places. Uh, 
and move ahead, 9-11 occurs, and um, I get a call from Washington, D.C. I had retired from the military. Um, there was a fellow at the FBI and said, uh, we're looking for the John Hoffman whose name is on these uh, defense threat reduction documents as it relates to hardening so food supply chains. And, of course, it was me. So that led to me going up there to meet them, give them some briefings, and then ultimately led to me being asked to come work uh, shortly after 9-11 at the Bureau to advise uh, Justice on how to do some of this and you know, how we might harden these supply chains. And then that led to me being, being moved over and becoming an appointee in Homeland Security. So uh, that's kind of how it came to be. But my, you know, my background kind of crosses over these kinds of supply chains and all the things related to how they function and what they do and the threats that may uh, may come to those things. Um, but I did spend quite a bit of time also working in the WMD area and working on a civil support team project um, as it was being built up. And um, that was a very interesting period, by the way, when all of a sudden there were funds to do things we'd never been able to get money to address. Um, I remember when I was first in the military police back in the late 60s, early 70s, as a young lieutenant, um, there were all these, you know, threats we anticipated happening. There were things happening in the United States. You know, we had the weatherman and other people threatening to do terrible things. Um, and we didn't have the tools. We didn't have the detection capability. We didn't have the countermeasures. You know, we were literally unprepared for biowarfare on the domestic level. Um, so when all this began to mature, it was kind of gratifying to see finally money was being put into figuring out how we're actually going to do those and then investing in it. So you started participating in a number of high-level meetings across the government. I mean, I've heard the stories from you where you were basically camped out at the White House um, every other night of the week. And, you know, this was this was pretty incredible for me in my personal story and me getting to know you over the years and you taught me so much. When was the first time that you heard about mRNA in either through Health and Human Services or De- Department of Defense or National Security Circles? Uh, actually, Andy's. Um, DITRA, um, Fort Detrick, and others were looking at what we would do. You know, what would be the doctrine? How would we deal with it? And, you, you know, this idea that it would take five or six years to develop a vaccine was unacceptable. So um, the various research agencies within DOD began looking at alternatives and a DNA approach was already understood in the 90s as a faster way to develop uh, a human body, a human body to have an antibody reaction to be able to build up antibodies against, uh, you know, an invading organism like what we've seen, not necessarily at that time where we're looking at at a virus like this, but we were looking at smallpox. We were looking, I say we, the DOD was looking at smallpox and looking at other kinds of viruses because viruses were seen as one of the, uh, you know, ideal weapons to be used because you couldn't use traditional antibiotics. You had to have something that was specific to that virus if you were going to deal with it and try to contain it and develop immunity, protect people, or having the ability if somebody was contaminated or exposed to it to have something you could give them right away that would uh, ameliorate the effect of the virus and and limit what it was actually able to do to you, minimize the level of infection and, and the amount of damage that it did in your system. So that's when they started looking at this approach. So you know, this is something that had been um, maturing for quite a period of time as they looked at different ways to do this. And, you know, this this was uh, uh, also looked at during anthrax 
and those scares, you know, how could you deal with that? What what kind of vaccine will we need? So it it has been around for, you know, it's been in the research world for a while. Went from theoretical to, you know, application to some testing. Um, so it was, it was there. Um, and I think SARS, actually, the first SARS event, uh, of orthotic coronavirus in D.C. So when that happened, um, Chinese were caught by surprise. They were much more open, much more uh, collaborative in sharing, which would suggest that it was a complete surprise for them and, and put a lot of fear into the biomedical world over there, as you can imagine. Uh, but it gave us a clue also as the kinds of emerging things that were out there, uh, particularly if they come from nature and then, you know, if there's any chance somebody could manipulate it. And, you know, there's been great fear of manipulation of these organisms ever since uh, the early 90s when, you know, the first indications that gain of function could actually be done or recognized. So when was the first time that you heard, or, or maybe let me rephrase the question, <clears throat> did you ever hear mRNA come up in any of the health and human services uh, meetings or was it purely through uh, defense and security? I think I, I don't think I heard um, that term outside of DOD or that kind of environment um, till, till much later. I think mRNA... I saw a paper on mRNA as a potential approach to rapid vaccine production probably after I left D.C. Um, and became a senior research fellow. I think that's when I first saw a paper on that. Now, that doesn't mean that's the beginning of it, but that's when I first became aware of it. Yeah, and, and actually, I became aware of mRNA through you and a few other scientists that we used to work with, I want to say in, in 2012, probably sh shortly after we first started working together. And, you know, oh, yeah, we, we knew about it. I'm just saying outside of DOD is the first time I saw something, you know, up to that time it was, it was DOD and it wasn't all necessarily classified there. You know, there was some outreach from, uh, from Dietrich out to several universities. I think, you know, a number of universities actually were involved in doing some of the preliminary research on this. And what, you know, what did they know about mRNA when, it, when they were first doing this research? I shouldn't say first doing the research, but when they were doing the research on mRNAs, maybe 2005 through 2015, what were some of the key characteristics or things that, that we had learned about using it as either, uh, well, using it as a medical count countermeasure for pandemics or bioterror, biowarfare? Well, I think the, the most important thing was the fact that you could fairly rapidly develop um, an, an adapted uh, mRNA vaccine that could have the desired effect. Now, I think that, you know, at that point in time, it was, it was assumed that there would have to be lengthy testing on not only how effective it actually is, and is it a persistent effect, or is it a temporary effect, and of course, then what are the long-term issues? And Charles, did you ever come across mRNA while you were in the Marine Corps? Um, not, not in my day-to-day -day life. Uh, I did, I did teach at the schoolhouse, and I, I rewrote the curriculum. And I even taught Army warrant officers for a while. Um, but w when I went back to Quantico for my last tour, and I was involved in some of the singularity university just forward-looking things that they were doing it, it it was one of the things that they discussed but at the time and this is something that 
that I remember even afterwards, and because the next year I, I, I went into my MBA program, and in that in 2018 and 2019, Moderna was the butt of a bunch of jokes because they they had not produced a successful anything, but billions were still being thrown at them, and part of the problem was that they were still trying to get over the hurdles associated with getting the right uh, lipid nanoparticle um, because they by themselves could be antigenic and making stable RNA and making a, 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 a high volume of high quality uh, mRNA. And so they were still trying to figure all these things out. And I, I mean, from my perspective, uh, I don't think they did figure it out. I, I think they were, they had something that they were five or 10 years away from, from really being ready to utilize and have tested and prepared whenever the pandemic started and they went with this one. But this was not, this was not something that in 2018 or even 2016, or if you read or listened to Ralph Barrick or some of these other scientists and Barney Graham, they didn't think that it was going to be ready in 2020. So take that for what it's worth. Yeah, I think, I think it's John again. I think that uh, it was a very immature science. There were lots of issues around it. But it was seen as the optimum path to go, which is why they put a lot of money into it. But I think, it, I think what you really need to begin to talk about, if, if we can, is some of the origins of, you know, of uh, SARS-CoV-2 and, and what oh, yes. actually happened because, uh, because that's what began to drive things, you know, was the, was the presence of this. And, oh yes. You know, that's, that's a fascinating area to look at right now. <laughs> well, and I think we're, we're getting there. So what, what does any of this have to do with gain of function? Uh, Charles, you want to take a stab at that? I mean, I've obviously have my own opinions, but I, I don't want to hog the conversation. Well, um, I, I do want to point out that, uh, uh, Dr. McCarron, uh, who's an expert in uh, prionopathies and amyloid disorders in the brain, he's in the audience, and he may at some point be able to come up here and throw some stuff down. He's quite knowledgeable when it comes to incapacitating agents. Um, but um, gain of function, <laughs> gain of function is. <clears throat> is basically the genesis of this virus. Anyway, we can, that's kind of putting the car before the horse, but what you need to understand is that if in order, as we started this space, what we talked about was that um, when you have a threat, you want to make a, a counter to that threat. But at the same time, you also need to understand that threat to counter it. And so it's understood that when you're developing new defensive technologies, you have to have something that you can employ as, as a means of testing, okay, well, is this mask going to work? Is this a therapeutic going to work? And so in the process of doing that, I mean, we can... <laughs> We can go a lot of different directions with this, but the bottom line is is that they were doing these experiments, and 
it wasn't until 2011 and 2012 when two different groups of scientists um, had conducted experiments where they basically had ferrets and they had H5N1, which is 60% lethal if it crosses over to humans as a, as a flu virus. But it's not pandemic. It, it can't spread between humans effectively. And what they did was they passaged it between ferrets until it gained a furin cleavage site and could, at least in one of the cases, and in both cases, it could transfer easily between them. So basically they took, and ferrets are a model that are used because their lungs are very close to human lungs. So in other words, two different groups in Minnesota and the Netherlands were about to publish papers. And the only reason this came up in, in the news, or the reason why it was shocking, was because people heard about it and because the question was asked, should we allow these papers to be published? But before that, there had been nothing. <laughs> and so imagine if you're like global scientists and you, and you hear that these viruses have already been created and nobody was, was tracking that. And, and that really that started the process that along with some mishaps really led to the the gain of function pause in 2014. So to, yeah, this is a classic case of just because we can doesn't mean we should. Absolutely. And, and that's what led to what was supposed to become uh, a pause, but as it turns out, it wasn't. Um, but, you know, that, that really raised, uh, when, that, when that first came out, that raised a lot of concern because we knew... For example, the Russian lab was still functioning, and we knew China was working on, you know, had, was still considered biowarfare a viable option. Um, and, of course, they're in the process of building, you know, the Wuhan facility. Um, they did reach out to the kind of global community and say we should do this together. But I think the naivete on the part of most countries, including ours, was the dual-use program in China. There's nothing in China in a commercial or civilian world that's not also part of the military. And that's everything great. has a dual-use. So having, you know, building that lab, um, you know, created an environment where there would be the potential for the military to leverage whatever was learned there. That may have also been a driver for some of the things that they did to find out what the, you know, what could be done. And if it could be done, you know, what would you do with it? Once again, this is probably a lesson China learned hard just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, in this one, when we started tracking that something was wrong, by the way, it was in the fall of 2019. Um, and at that point in time, we were beginning to hear through a number of different channels that something was happening over there um, and that this was not something that broke in December. It broke much earlier than that. Um, John, can, can you highlight were scrambling. that? <clears throat> just to jump in real quick, can you, can you just say that real concisely so that the audience can understand that? Because that is a very critical component which demonstrates how our government wasn't being an honest actor in this situation <laughs> well or or was it naivete but basically there were problems in that lab from the get-go and in fact in 2018 um as they were beginning to do experiments on um 
new samples of SARS-like viruses that had been found in bats and bat caves, remote areas of China, um, these uh, FDA folks went in to examine what they were doing and how they were doing it and actually sent a very alarming cable back that there was a lack of appropriate uh, biosecurity around what they were doing. And they were um, literally testing you know, extremely dangerous uh, viruses that we didn't know much about and did not have countermeasures, and they were not even doing it in a BSL level four, meaning a highest biosecurity level environment. They were doing it at BSL level two, which is basically just under a hood. Yep. Um, and and this this meant that there was a very significant risk of these viruses they were experimenting with getting loose, you know, unintentionally. Um, you add to, the, add to that that the military in China was equipping this lab. Um, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's a general over in China, Li Shangfu, who is an aeronautical engineer, but he is in charge of all equipment development for the Chinese military. Now, most will look at him and say, well, you know, he's out here building airplanes and building tanks and ships. Well, not only that, but he's putting the equipment together for biowarfare because the, all the components of their service could, could be employed in using those kinds of weapons. And so he's got to supply all the equipment and all the design and everything for building a lab or a production facility for it or, or even the equipment to build countermeasures, you know, to be able to build vaccines and make them available. These guys were deeply involved in what was going on in Wuhan, um, which suggests to me there might have been pressure there to get things done. That may be why things were lax. But that also may be why, you know, the Chinese reached out to EcoHealth and other people um, seeking technical input to advance more rapidly their research. Um, and given that this was being done in less than ideal biosecurity environment, you know, all the ingredients were there for a mishap or an escape of this uh, of this this organism, and I don't think sufficient attention was paid by everybody, including the U.S., in what was happening there and what the ramifications would be if something went wrong. Well, it did go wrong, and we first detected things in the fall. Um, I actually sat in on a phone call in late November. Chinese doctor talking to some folks here in the U.S. This is outside of government. It was an academic environment um, that something was happening. There was something spreading and they were unprepared for it. And, you know, a lot of indications that the Chinese recognized something happened much earlier. I mean, this nonsense about throwing a hospital up from, you know, from not, not <laughs> existing um, and to built in the end of December is crazy. There were pictures from early December showing infrastructure already in the ground and all the foundations and piping and sewer lines and electrical and everything already in place. Well, to get that done, you would need drawings and engineers and architecture work and all that stuff. You know, they had been planning this hospital or recognized the need for this hospital months before and were trying to build it as fast as they could. So that's just one example of the indicators. But something was happening over there and that something had gotten loose. So, John, I think we'll have you back on for another space where we start to get into the meat of that. It's, it's really the goal of coming out of this one. I wanted to be able to everyone understand how the relationship between uh, dual-use research are concerned, gain-of-function, mm -hmm. and medical countermeasures so that people can understand why we're doing, the, that, that, why we're doing these things in, in concert. So, and I can put this, out, this question to, to both of you. 
So is there a justifiable civilian use for gain of function? Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> I, uh, I, I've kind of been an absolutist and I think that in the past I would have, I would have pretty much said what, what a lot of other people would say, which is that, well, you need to be able to counter what other people can do. But <clears throat> after, after spending a career kind of on one side of it and knowing that, uh, that, um, oh gosh, uh, Ken Albikov, who was one of the two or three uh, defectors who came over from Russia in the early 90s, they basically told us that they were, not only were they actively engaged and had tons of warfare agents, but they they were ahead of us in many areas in terms of technological capability. Um, and I, I think there was a, some hubris. I mean, I was obviously not there back then, but I, I think there had been hubris uh, to think that I know they were surprised, but I think there was also hubris. And at the same time, now that I've having watched the pandemic, I mean, I obviously understand the importance of and the value of uh, being prepared for something. But I also understand that <clears throat> the <laughs> well, I, I've been investigating the origin from from a different. Point I've been trying to figure out what happened, and the bulk of my research has led me to the place where I know that if we had used the capabilities, the technology that was available to us at, in 2020, when this first became apparent, then this would have been a very different pandemic. But instead, we regressed we made decisions that were antithetical to what we had known to do in in dozens of areas. And I know that you know you and I have talked a lot about this, but but the reality is is that we had technologies. we We had antivirals that weren't ivermectin or hydrochloroquine that had been invented in America, uh, including by one of the authors of the Proximal Origin SARS-CoV-2 that targeted specific parts of class 1 uh, fusion protein viruses that weren't used specifically because they did not want to highlight the fact of these specific parts of the vi that the virus were in there. Why? Because these specific parts of the virus were highly homologous or similar to several pieces of the HIV genome. And they knew this, and they intentionally ch chose not to address it. And they also intentionally chose not to remove these pieces from the spike protein when they made the vaccine. And in addition, <laughs> the, there are other things that, that I will eventually testify to because um, there was more than just the diffuse proposal that was that was given to me by our DARPA source, but the bottom line is is that they had detection technologies. They had, but they didn't even use the stuff that that we knew to use already. 
Instead, they went in completely different areas with unproven technologies and refused to bring to bear the weight of our expertise and our ingenuity. And I know for a fact that DARPA and many other um, agencies were desperately offering these innovation, innovative ideas and they were being struck down. And they're being struck down by the very same people who have been encouraging this kind of work, including Dr. Fauci. So that, that um, kind of encapsulates the problem, but it's a massive problem. I agree. So, so John, I think the follow-up to that is, do you think the Department of Defense just wanted its, its platform, that being the mRNA platform and the weapon, at the end of the day? Is that really what the push was here, is to get the new technology to market at, at all costs? I don't think I could say that. I think, in fact, I'm, I know that there were people um, at various levels who's uh, had the same attitude as I did. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Now, you know, once the SARS virus had been adapted and COVID was on the street, as it were, and infecting the world, um, you know, even before it was an issue here, you know, as early as, uh, you know, when Italy really was having a major break in the end of December, um, same time China was, you know, now highly public and admitting something was happening. Um, you know, there was a push in DOD, hey, we got to do something. You know, what, what do we have? Um, a lot of decisions were made there, but um, I can't, you know, can't just speak to them. But what really bothered me was that once we knew something was happening, we didn't follow the plan. Uh, you know, to put it in simple terms, we had a plan. We had a a, a plan for a major virus. Um, the the plan was originally written around AI, but uh, even influenza. Uh, but it was a viral plan, and it was how we would maintain function in the country, how we would do all these things, and we didn't follow it. And because we didn't follow the plan, we created more problems than we were solving with a great degree. That's right. So how, how heartbreaking was it for you since I know that you that plan for different sub-agencies and agencies when they didn't follow it. Oh, I was crushed. In fact, I, you know, myself and Dr. McGinn were raising Kane in DHS. I mean, I was I was on phone calls every day saying, what the heck is going on here? We're, you know, you were making decisions we knew we shouldn't be making. We're doing things we shouldn't be doing. Shutting down the food service supply chain in this country was illogical, was not part of the original plan. And what we try to explain is, you know, 50% of the meals consumed in the United States are in food service. Only 50% are at home. If you shut down food service, the grocery system can't supply everybody. There wasn't a shortage of food. There was a shortage of food okay. in the grocery supply chain. And we actually created mass hunger and food insecurity in this country with those decisions. We knew it would happen. We warned against it. And people told yeah. us, shut up. Don't say anything. Yeah, it, that pretty much sums up my experience of being a government scientist. Um, <laughs> well, I think this is a good, a good place to, to ask the audience if there's any questions. I think we have time for, for I don't know, two, three questions, see where it goes. That's excellent. Uh, Monica, how would you like to handle that? Uh, yeah, that's great. Let's do that because I know there's a gentleman uh, who I'm about to bring up. He was in my space. Um, he is uh, an Air Force pilot. He was in my military readiness space just the other evening. I'm going to add... Uh, David to the conversation. He has a question um, that he posed online. So I think this will be a good place to start. 
Uh, wow, this has all been very enlightening, gentlemen, for sure. And I and I do hear kind of the the okay, is this naivete, right? Or was this intentional? And if so, what part? And it looks like we're trying to get it, like we're now getting into some of the, the meat and potatoes of that. And it sounds like there's a difference of opinion as to what part was reckless, what part was intentional. And this is such a blessing, I think, for us because the American people are very confused and, and they don't trust DARPA. They don't trust the DOD. They don't trust DHS. They trust nothing. They certainly don't trust uh, Fauci so or the NIH or the CDC. And so I appreciate the candor and I certainly hope that we'll continue uh, along in the same vein, you know, as we're moving forward. Um, so without further ado, David uh, Beckerman, welcome, sir. Hey, thanks. First of all, uh, thanks for bringing me up. And wow, I'm learning so much from you guys. Uh, active duty major here. My opinions are my own. Do not represent the Department of Defense or the US Air Force. Hey, so um, I, with eight other officers, we submitted a whistleblower report to Congress. Senator Johnson picked it up. The focus of that report was the fraudulent licensure, right? The EUA issue. Yes. The the mandating of an unlicensed EUA. It didn't really gain traction. He bit off on the wrong um, piece of that report. Uh, we were talking about fraudulent labels as well. But then mm-hmm. I went into this research rabbit hole of Project BioShield and BARDA. And so with the expertise in the room, I'd like to ask, how does BARDA and Project BioShield play into all the things <laughs> that you guys are talking about? Because from my perspective, um, just for this particular pandemic, like Project BioShield is what uh, lays the ground um, lays the groundwork for the financing of the research, and it allows it's what granted this emergency use authorization category. So I just so to sum it up, the question is: hmm. How does that play into what you guys are bringing into the table? Um, well, uh, so, so I just want to say real fast that the the, yes, it, it allows for the funding, but from what I understand from what you're talking about, if if they were just slapping new labels on the EUA virus and calling it Comirnaty, uh, I would think that that would – the whole point was is that it doesn't really matter how it was funded because they still skirted the rules. Um, to do it. Now, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but because that, that is the problem, right? Is that they, so as long if it's not going to be, if they already lied about that, I don't know that they, it, it might not be the problem of the funding if, if they were just lying about putting the labels on, but maybe I'm hearing that wrong. No, well, I guess the problem is twofold. One, uh, we lied to the public about what vaccine was available. We said commercially. Absolutely. Was- on August 23rd, but then it was never produced in the military because we were, you know, writing um, our writing to the inspector general and writing Article 138 complaints. What they did for us was they produced community labeled um, and they use that term yep. uh, uniformly and consistently. They say community <laughs> labeled, community labeled. And I made uh, one of my fellow whistleblowers made the joke like you wouldn't go to a restaurant and order a Coke labeled soda. You would just order a Coke. So we're dealing with that, and I'm, and I'm I'm trying to make the public aware that you know there are no licensed uh, injections, vaccines, whatever you want to call it, and I'm not going as far as you guys are. Right? I I feel like the the lie 
the, the, this initial lie is is enough to get people worked up and upset at the government. Um, but all That's correct. Guys, what you guys are bringing just so fascinating, and I'm I'm, I'm hoping that we can connect after because I'm sure I'll have questions as my research uh, as I continue down my research rabbit hole. Well, once down the rabbit hole, what I find is it, it's just you, you, you just you never think you can be one up to one more time by your own investigation, your own research, and then you find one more shocking thing. And from what I've looked at, it's just one fraud on top of another. And, and one thing that didn't come up earlier in the conversation is that. Um, so here, Colonel Hoffman, let me ask the question: uh, What did you know about the the ability of the mRNA platform to prevent transmission, and when did you learn that? Wow, that's a good question. I have to think back. Um, <laughs> uh, you know the the assumption, the working assumption that that I had in interpreting what I was hearing was that it wouldn't necessarily prevent transmission. And um, all of the original things that I read, the original research was on RMNA, RMNA is that basically the idea was that you minimize of an infection, you aren't necessarily going to prevent infection or you're not going to make people immune to infection. And I think that the one of the mistakes made in the legion of mistakes um, was this uh, representation that somehow getting the vaccine would mean that you could not catch the virus. That was never Absolutely. in the early, um, indicating any of the early research on this, it was never... Uh, um, one of the, you know, primary goals, it was to limit the severity. Um, you know, when you're looking at this as something you would use in a fighting force, you would still have functional soldiers, even if they had a bad cold, you know, or bad infection, but it wasn't debilitating. And that was the whole idea here is that you created something that could minimize the effect, keep people out of the hospital and lower mortality and severe morbidity. Um, that's not how it was presented to the Republic. And, you know, how that came to be, there's probably going to be a lot, of a lot of retrospective on that for years. But it was a huge mistake because it misrepresented exactly what they believed this was going to do as a vaccine. But I think people might laugh or cry when they hear this. Could you estimate what year that was when you came to that determination about the transmission characteristics of the mRNA platform? Well, that was a working assumption early. I think that goes back to the early 2000s. And remember, there were hold events on, I think, I think, I, Hold on. I think I just got to jump in because how shocking that probably is for much of the audience. So, I mean, so Colonel Hoffman says that, you know, through his experience that he knew that the mRNA platform did not uh, prevent disease transmission in the 2000s. I myself learned, learned this fact in, in the national security setting in 2014. I become aware of this. And fast forward six or seven years, that hadn't clearly changed. But yet the government went out and told everyone that this, this platform would prevent disease transmission. Well, that's, that's correct. And actually, when, when we released the diffused documents, um, the, one of the reasons that DARPA rejected that proposal from Equal Health Alliance is because it was, it was, it was, it was a very similar concept to the lipid nanoparticle mRNA. And the the entire one of the main problems was that it it produces partial epitope coverage. So by definition, it's it, it's ultimately going to spur um, viral evolution. But coronavirus, in particular, they are more prone to evolution because they're easier to recombine as well as mutate. Um, 
So that problem is going to be exacerbated. And DARPA in 2018 rejected that. And what the diffuse proposal actually shows, and this is the point that I tried to make after we released it, whenever I was writing articles and working behind the scenes to, to kill the mandates in the military, is the fact that the DOD rejected this idea in bats in 2018. And then 18 months later, it became the primary basic platform for NIH and HNHS. And then 18 months after that, the president ordered universal coverage for all of the troops, even though this was the exact same thing that DOD had rejected three years earlier. And when you, when you pile that on top of this, the, the attempt to then cover it up just so they could keep it universally vaccinating, as, uh, as the major was talking about, it was disgusting. Like, I, I, it's horrific. It really is. Uh, speaking well, I of, think uh, you have to bear. I'm sorry. Have a little perspective. Excuse me. No, 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 no. Please go ahead. I just noticed that David had his hand back up. But please, uh, Colonel, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just want a, a little perspective on this. Um, and it was very logical at the time for DARPA to refuse that. There were people who were against doing this at that time, and there was no, at the time, imminent threat. I think that the fact that the threat world changed with the advent of the manipulated COVID you know, virus coming out and having <laughs> the effect yeah. it was going to have is going to cause people to rethink and make make decisions. And we can question those decisions for years, you know, as we go forward. But from the early standpoint, the assumption was that you may not, not be able to give you full immunity. Um, but the belief was that if you had something like this deployed, it would spread through a community of people, and eventually there would be a certain level of inherent uh, immunity, herd immunity, if you will, that would occur in that group of people as the virus mutated to deal with the, um, you know, whatever the agents were using to counter it. Because viruses, you know, they succeed, if you will. They only change through time and morph through time as a way to survive uh, and not kill the host because the virus always kills the host and eventually the virus dies off when everybody you got is dead. So the, you know, viruses don't really, nature didn't, didn't configure them that way. That's not the way they're programmed. And so they were trying to leverage that aspect of the virus that it, yeah, it'll evolve, but it becomes essentially less virulent and it becomes, doesn't mean less contagious, but it means it's not going to have the damage that it that would, that it has at the beginning, like high mortality, high morbidity. So, that was part of the logic behind using this as an approach, but it was not mature. There were many, many questions still about using. Then the COVID, you know, pandemic broke, and then people started making decisions. That's where this, and, and plus misrepresenting things, and that's where this creates problems. Thank you for that. Um, uh, Texas, Lindsay, do you mind, uh, Lindsay, telling us what you just put up in the nest? And then, Andrew, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to, um, to uh, David. So I just added the um, EcoHealth Alliance DARPA proposal that Project Veritas is the one that kind of put this really in the semi-mainstream news with everything. Um, it's the proposal that um, Colonel Hoffman was discussing and how it was um, denied initially when it was brought forward the first time initially because of the ethics behind it. They declined because it was essentially trying to bypass the gain of function um, that was already 
uh, the moratorium that was already in place. So I just pinned that up there. The documents are there. The documents also disclose how um, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin were known effective treatments um, as early, I think, as February, March 2020 is what they say. And those were that information was suppressed in order to get the emergency use authorization approved That's for correct. the um, DOD vaccines. So our gene therapies is technically what they are, but they relabeled those as well as, as vaccines. So I just went ahead and, and posted that there so everyone can see those if they haven't seen them yet. Thank you. And for those of you who are not familiar, please follow Lindsay. She is hosting some amazing spaces and they, you know, she covers a lot of this and she's doing a lot to help people uh, behind the scenes with this as well. Uh, David. Yeah. So uh, Colonel, I think you would have been around for the anthrax and it's, it's refreshing to hear you guys talking about it. Anthrax was the, you know, the first EUA that they mandated for the military. And then that uh, order was, uh, you know, became it SCOTUS ruled that that was an un- unlawful order. And here we are repeating uh, that same mistake. Uh, Major Murphy, who wrote this invest- inspector general report, he actually were enrolled in the same school. Uh, I've been trying to get a hold of him, in fact, to kind of pick his brain a little bit more. Um, but he's a distance learner, so I can't reach out to him through like the school messenger. Uh, but I, I just wanted to say, you know, again, the more I hear you guys explain it, the more I'm convinced it's a, it was planned, you know, and Project BioShield, by the way, which they, which they renamed in 2013 to, uh, the, uh, Pandemic All Hazard Preparation Act. I think that has right. a, a key piece to the puzzle. And I haven't quite figured it out what that puzzle is. And I, right now what I'm seeing is that it, it gave it, it allows funding. Uh, it was allowing them to research, and it's what allows them to uh, fast track these pro- these treatments, pro- uh, products, vaccines, whatever, under this EUA umbrella. And where the lie and the manipulation comes into place is telling the public that yeah, it's FDA licensed. Don't worry, go get this thing, and then it was never produced. So it's fascinating. I thank you guys for your time, and I'm uh, like I said, I'm hoping. Hopefully we can, uh, I can reach to you guys as I'm doing more research. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. Uh, Nostic came up. Uh, Nostic, you have a question? Uh, yeah, I'm, first of all, you know, thank you, Elon, for allowing spaces like this. Dr. Hoff, John, Charles, uh, you've plugged a whole bunch of holes in the information that I've been able to dig up over time. And just in, in Texas, uh, thank you all regardless of the pressure you're put under, thank you for coming forward and continuing to do do the work that you're doing. Uh, it is appreciated by more people than you could possibly ever imagine. Um, and our gratitude to you forever for the work that you're doing. What you're doing is bringing together a model of what's happened and how it happened and where it happened. But I would add a little bit. I've, I've got a whole bunch of other stuff, and I'll leave it up to Monica whether you know she brings me back to do some other things. But As far as the history goes, I've been watching this since 2012 uh, when they first started the bat operations in Wuhan and the bat lady started collecting her her stuff because the danger involved in that was huge. And at a level two, level three lab that they were working in, it was a problem. And then when I believe it's the French uh, started work on the level four lab, uh, it became a little bit better. But the requests for cleanliness assistance that came back to the Canadian Level 4 lab as well as to the Atlanta Level 4 labs 
uh, have already been documented, and we know that the labs just were not up to up to snuff either for cleanliness or for sealing things up to sit down and do it. And I don't know if you followed the export of by a I forget what her title was, but she was a a viral researcher employed by the Chinese army that was working in the lab in Winnipeg. And she and her husband, I believe, were the ones that took uh, virus samples, deadly virus samples, out of Winnipeg at the request of shipping. It didn't go outside normal shipment channels or anything, but they still took these these samples to the Wuhan lab. Uh, and when you ship stuff in and out of China, there's a whole set of biologic forms that you have to fill out. And my, I suspect what happened is that when those forms made it up through filtering in China, somebody finally looked at it and said, we have we have a leaky lab with gain-of-function work being done in it, and we're now shipping in a deadly virus. If there's a combination in there, this is going to be a disaster. And my understanding, again, trying to get go back in time and get all of this you know, proven is, is weak, but it looks like the Chinese sent in the army to clean out the observers in there that were observing the lab, and now you've got soldiers walking around a lab uh, that have no idea how to how to maintain cleanliness in a lab that's not clean anyway, and so the guess is that the the virus one of those soldiers or several of the soldiers ended up getting infected, took it back, and then the military games that took place in Wuhan in the fall of that year, there were many Canadian soldiers that came back that had flu-like symptoms that were specifically ordered by the commanders not to be tested. And we've, we're still looking for evidence of the other people that went to that military game that sit down and got, got ill uh, and trying to trace it back to see whether or not there were other ones that were there. But that was in the early fall. And some of the blood samples that, that came out of China that were tested showed that by September, there was a fair degree of known infection that was taking place and the Chinese government I think was just trying to save I, I whether this was done on purpose or to simply a door that people saw and could take advantage of in a given circumstance so I'm sure the military people are aware of if you set something eventually someone will pull a trigger someone will shoot somewhere and you'll end up a massive set of accidents and I don't think anybody let this loose on purpose, but they did set up either by accident, by naivete, by whatever, the ability for this to occur and subsequently had it occurred. And I'm really happy to hear you sit down and present the, the naivete argument. Uh, I just came out of a social event where a whole bunch of people from different public health organizations were there and the degree of we're willing to accept certain amount of deaths in order to sit down and inoculate the entire population because that's just part of the whole process. I think at heart of people sitting down and making some of these naive mistakes is the belief that a certain number of critical illness and a certain number of deaths is acceptable to sit down and protect the rest of the population was at the heart of some of the decisions that were made here. But I'll, I'll let this go for now, Monica. But I, wow, I, this is a great space, and I thank all people Thank you for being here, and please do press on with Monica. Thank you, absolutely, and we will. We we've got um, we have a whole series. This is a six part series for those of you who did not know. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm certainly I'm not quite to where you are, Gnostic, about believing. You know that that this was all naivete, and I think two ten things can be true. 
right? And so I'm 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 really looking forward to digging back into this recording. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, thank you. By the way, we're going to be uh, coming to a close here soon. However, the first part, the first space crashed. Shocking, I know. Um, so what I'm going to do is take both spaces and I'm going to uh, merge them into one show. So I, I want to encourage you to please share this material far and wide. Um, if you are media and you are sharing my material, I thank you in advance for crediting my show. Uh, and my space the Monica Matthews Show, and you're right here at MySpace at Monica on Air Talk. And thank you for joining me. Please continue to come back throughout the series. Um, I think there's a lot of golden nuggets in here, as you can tell. I'm already getting the conspiracy theorists blown up my DMs, and that's fine. I'm used to that too. Um, but, I, but I think if we can put all of that aside for just a minute and really uh, dig through uh, the information, we owe it to ourselves, right? We owe it to ourselves to take new information and bring it to the table. These are new puzzle pieces. And and more importantly, I see it as we finally, quite possibly, have the box to the jigsaw puzzle, right? And have you ever tried to put a jigsaw puzzle together without the box? (laughs) And that's kind of what we've all been doing for the past few years, driving ourselves crazy and, and becoming extremely divided in the process. And even the process has become criminalized, Right. And so um, I'm honored to have been a part of it. And, but please also just share the show. I will put it up. You do not have to um, subscribe to my podcast, although I would encourage you to do so. I would love to have your patronage. But if you if you don't, you can share this without having to subscribe. So please share it within your respective circles. But um, if there's unless, uh, you know, I would ask you, um, Dr. Huff, if you would just please kind of encapsulate uh, briefly what we've discussed here today to give people who just came in a little bit later an idea of uh, where we began and where we're ending in preparation for the next uh, episode. Thank you. Sure. So this episode or this space began with us examining the need or the rationale of countermeasure development, the development of drugs and vaccines, and how that has a symbiotic relationship with dual-use research of concern or this other jargon term called gain-of-function. So how we evolve and advance infectious disease because we need to, to to be able to test the drugs or vaccines or gene therapies that we're trying to develop. And the mRNA platform itself is a unique, was in a unique position because it could be rapidly deployed and developed and scaled faster than any other product. Well, I'm sort of winking while I'm saying that, but that was the argument put forward that the mRNA platform could be manufactured and scaled to meet a national emergency. And through that process and through people's fear, and there was a number of deceit, deceits that took place by a number of different actors to bring this platform to the market and then we eventually got into, started actually going into the weeds on a number of different aspects of the pandemic, its origin, and the politics around it. And I, I think that's probably a good place to stop. Okay. Um, excellent. I, I did bring one other person up because he's an investigative journalist that I follow, and he's been in my spaces, and I trust him to be succinct 
and to have his question ready to go. And I know you guys can handle it. So if you all would not mind uh, obliging just briefly, that would be great. And then I'd love to go to my co-host who had his hand up. And I would love to get some closing remarks from Lindsay because I know she has a lot of knowledge and she's doing a lot of great work. And I want to give her an opportunity to chime in uh, before we I give my closing remarks and uh, and we sign off. So George, welcome. Yeah. Hey, uh, Dr. Huff, George Webb. Thank you, Monica, for the uh, ability to ask Dr. Huff a question. I bought his book, audio and Kindle. I recommend that to everybody. Search the Kindle. Uh, Dr. Huff, I was just wondering about digital detection. You talk about it a lot in your book and the evidence that you have for the early breakout in September. And I think you may even reach into August with your digital detection. Is that published anywhere? Your you have satellite photographs or the uh, cell phone or the Google uh, and just what, what's the body of evidence we have so far? Yes. So much of that inter- uh, information is available online. It's very deeply buried and difficult to find. They've broken the powers of be have broken link, links to it. Um, the websites will get scrubbed where it pops up. I'm happy to send you some of the information if you'd like to like to see it. I know that's your thing. And as far as digital d- disease detection is concerned, I'm, I'm one of a handful of experts that built platforms for the Department of Defense and, and three other agencies using machine learning and artificial intelligence. And because of my previous work in the national security space, I know what types of data that the U.S. government has access to, and that being the intelligence community or the military health intelligence folks. And it, it's not difficult for me to see or know when they likely detected the signals on this. I actually I saw something to this effect that a civilian came up with and posted to Twitter today where they were looking at um, – pandemic or infectious emerging infectious disease signals from Google search terms, which was today on Twitter. So there've been a number of other people working in that area. And if it helps you anyway, I'm happy to share that, that information with you directly. Great. Um, If you want to put it in the nest for everybody, or if you, I don't know what you prefer. I hate to be the only guy getting the sole source, although it sounds like a great exclusive. So maybe I'll do that instead. Well, it'll take me some time to. I'll have to go pull it off my my one of my hacked devices. I haven't looked at it in a while. My my computers were actually getting hacked at, at such a frequency. I was rotating them out and refreshing the operating systems on them. So it'll probably take me half a day or a day to put it together, and then I could probably put it in a WeTransfer link, and then I can post it to Twitter. Awesome, thank you, Doctor. Thanks, George. Appreciate you. Uh, Tim. Yes. Uh, good afternoon, Doctor Huff, and also our our panel, um, Texas and John. Uh, I had a question about the, in your book, you mentioned the 1977 uh, lab leak in Russia that led to H1N1. Are you aware of any further lab leaks that happened in North America between the time frames of 2005 and 2009? I mean, there's probably so many lab leaks you you wouldn't really know about. I'm speaking here from uh, putting my academic hat on here. So I, I used to be a professor at Michigan State University, uh, and I worked in the Center for Comparative Epidemiology in both human and animal medicine as an epidemiologist, and I was also a hospital epidemiologist. And I've run uh, BSL-2 labs, and lab leaks happen. And it's just a, it's a, it's a function or a part of the business. And th- the question is whether or not those lab leaks get accurately reported within 
either the university or academic community or the government system where they happen because there's um, huge incentive for faculty, clinicians, laboratory techs, students, um, and people working in and around infectious diseases not to report these things because there are consequences for it. Um, but there, there's actually a long list of, of documented, suspected, and confirmed lab leaks which have happened within the, within the United States, but typically with infectious diseases which do not pose um, a pandemic threat, if that makes sense. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Hoff. Excellent. Ten, thank you. Uh, okay, great. We have Charles back, back with us. Um, Lindsay, go ahead. Um, well, one thing that we I, I can add here is about the Google searches and, and being related to COVID is a Harvard study was on the um, COVID origins being found as early as um, late summer, early fall 2019. And I actually shared that study on Twitter and Twitter put a COVID misinformation label on the Harvard study link that I shared. It's absolutely outrageous, but basically it was an analysis of WeChat, Facebook, social media in China, where there was um, a huge uptick of people searching for flu-like symptoms. And they also did an analysis of parking lots compared with prior year of satellite imaging, showing that the parking lot was essentially empty the year before around the same time frame. And then and around August 2019, it was um, completely full of cars. And you combine that with the people searching for um, flu-like symptoms and you, you see, you get a better picture of the virus starting much earlier than the official narrative states. Uh, in that same time frame between August and September, Bill Gates was meeting with BioNTech and officially became a um, big stakeholder in BioNTech and bought in $50 million, promising to buy in um, at $150 million if things if things went well. As you know, Bill Gates' ties to the World Health Organization, which was directly linked to the investigation in Wuhan, along with EcoHealth Alliance. You have all these components going back in, in China with ties and knowledge of what was happening, and then you follow the money and it, and it leads to a really nefarious scenario of people knowing things that were going on um, before the public did and before they admitted to their own knowledge of it. But so I just kind of wanted to, to add that I can also add, I can't pull up the link that I shared. I think I ended up having to delete it. I was also censored for sharing the very first time I was ever locked out of Twitter. Um, it was about something um, about Peter Daszak and I was working with Andrew and um, I shared a tweet that he deleted, and it was about the Bat Lady that um, I can't remember if David or, or Gnostic mentioned her, but she um, gave a speech. And, you know, of course, all these academic um, sponsors were involved in the speech that she gave. But just pointing out, I said, why did Peter Daszak delete if he wasn't worried about a lab leak? Uh, about it being a lab leak, something along those lines, and um, uncovered DC covered covered my censorship and the fact I didn't believe uh, that this happened I, didn't, I was never Twitter until January of 2022 um and it was shocking to me that you could get locked out of your account for asking why someone deleted a tweet so um all these things there's there's obviously a huge cartel behind the scenes behind a curtain of of mystery and and hopefully we'll we'll find out 
who these actors were and what their involvement was on, on the censorship with that, because they were, they were all shadow banning all of these scientists, especially the, the members of Drastic that were involved um, in participating in this. And they, they didn't seem to um, censor Andrew too much. <laughs> he, he got away with um, just about anything that he, he was willing to share. Um, but, you know, it just goes to show that there's um, a much bigger thing involved behind the scenes and hopefully that curtain will be lifted soon so we can know exactly what happened well i think they did something strange to me and i've reflected back upon my twitter experience i mean i think i was placed into essentially a limited hangout with my followers and it never expanded same yeah (laughs) both were subjected to that and then he and andrew was telling about all these when uh, I guess we worked together for like two and a half months, like every day we were talking to journalists around the world. It's funny how the U S media wasn't beating down our doors, but the um, major outlets in other countries in Spain and Germany and everywhere wanted to interview Andrew. They couldn't believe that the New York times wasn't beating down his door wanting to cover his story. And I was like, well, you, you need an education there because the New York times is, been captured for a long time and <laughs> this doesn't fit their narrative so they're not going to cover it even though it had nothing to do about vaccines it didn't fit the Fauci narrative about um the evidence showing that it was a lab leak so that that was really concerning how the the press acted but everyone said that it would change in November and it did and Andrew made a huge media tour since once that happened but I think the shift in power um to the Republicans taking over the house made a big difference there, but, um, it's, it's just, it's wild until you're in it. But Andrew was telling me about how, um, he thought either FBI or CIA was breaking into his house and, um, you know, going through his things. And I thought, well, that, that just sounds, that sounds so wild. It's hard to even like wrap your mind around how that could be happening. But I was carrying my laptop with me everywhere. I left it home one day when I went to a, a work lunch. And when I came back home, Every single thing on my computer was gone. All everything I'd saved, and I, like I, I just remember thinking, "Oh my gosh, this is this is real. This is this really happened." There was a car parked out of, outside of my house for over a week, and I'd never seen it before. After this whole thing happened, I never saw that car again. And um, luckily, a lot of my my documents were backed up in the iCloud. But it really hits home when it happens to you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's not a conspiracy or anything anymore. It's just, it's very real. So, um, yeah, just to ca- kind of give some credence to that, it 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 was it's very real and it does happen. And uh, didn't it didn't scare me or deter me. It made me very determined to keep going and try harder because that just means you're they they want to know what you have and uh, they were determined to figure it out. So, and now yeah. all they have to do is tune in to Twitter Spaces. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, or at least mine. (laughs) So, and Lindsay, for sure, the ones you you're hosting with like Laura Logan and those guys, you know, yeah, that that's the whole like DOD complex over there in some of your spaces. Um, Yeah, yeah, a lot of truth bombs. I love it. Um, I'm sorry, Andrew, did you have something that you wanted to add? Uh, no, I was just trying to laugh at the group. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, well, I'm like, okay, for the record, uh, my breaks are new. I am not trying to end my life anytime soon. And thanks, Andrew, now that you've brought me into your <laughs> into your atmosphere. Uh, but you know what? I'm used to it. And to be honest with you, when you asked if I would do it, um, I was like, absolutely. Uh, because, because, uh, because 
of the acquisition of, of Twitter, um, we have been given a relative reprieve as media to actually uh, bring stories like this and bring information to you without quite the level of censorship, or at least I have. Now, I am extremely throttled and shadow banned, I will tell you that, um, but I'm still here. And so that's a good thing. Uh, but for the past two years, like I said, um, our, my spaces in particular with Tin and my regular co-host, uh, Christopher, we have been, you know, we've had people coming in to really try to mitigate the damage and the fear and the terror and the dread that the people are going through across the globe, not, not just here stateside. Uh, with regard to COVID and losing people and they're confused and, you know, all this whole disinformation campaign um, and misinformation and just lack of information. And so I was 1000% on board because I feel like, you know, we're at least in an atmosphere now where we can be, um, you know, relatively open and free with our dialogue. Again, if for some reason you don't like just disappear off of Twitter, you can always go to my website at monicamatthews.com. You can sign up for my newsletters there as well. Um, and I will push this out to my uh, respective audience as well. And again, for those of you who are just joining us, thank you. Um, we did crash earlier. I will combine the two spaces and you will have one full show from which you can pull and, uh, and circulate to your respective uh, family members, friends, uh, you know, the, the people who just are still wearing 16 masks in their car or jogging down the street, which I will never fully understand. Um, and yes, I do hear all of you serving in our military. Thank you very much. And you know, I love you. That's why I gave you a space the other night because your voices need to be heard all the time. Um, and I do realize that this is the 12th iteration of a COVID emergency, you know, use and that you guys are still being um, harassed by your commands uh, regarding your lack of vaccination. So, or whatever status you happen to have. I also want to say this in this space. Congratulations to all of you who listen to my spaces. You, um, have helped that, uh, that young lady who was in our military space and readiness space the other evening, private first class, um, Carolina, and you've helped her over like $4,000. Um, she lost her job the next day, um, after being in my space, she is um, very sick and vaccine injured, um, and she's needed help. She came into our space with $100. She left our space with over 4000 She was on Emerald Robinson today, and Emerald is also sharing her. We've kind of worked together to get her more exposure so that those of you serving in uniform have more exposure. So please uh, go and retweet Emerald's work as well and make sure that you're keeping up with Carolina in as much as it's possible if you can give. That would be amazing. So thank you for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you to our special guests. You guys were wonderful. Please come back um, anytime. And I, I hope to see you back for the remainder of the conversation uh, throughout these episodes. Uh, thank you for taking the time to educate us on the genesis of COVID-19, uh, what it was, why it was made where uh, in the correlation between biowarfare and pandemics. Please follow everyone on our panel and mark your calendars for this Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time as we continue our series, Risk Factor, Why COVID Was Made. Uh, episode two will introduce the biosurveillance and health intelligence uh, episode. I hope this space has served you in bringing perhaps new information to help you while navigating this global disaster. Uh, my hope is also that you'll leave the landscape of anger and wrath 
because I hear you. I see your tweets. I feel your pain. I get your emails. I hear about your wife dropping dead in the kitchen. I mean, I get it. I've, I've walked through this valley of the shadow of death with you all for two years. So I know it's easy to be angry and you don't know who to believe, but I'm hoping that my spaces are going to offer you a place to put the actual pieces of the actual puzzle together um, with this series. So it's time for us to really grasp the depth and the, and the breadth of, of the medical assault, I think, on our collective psyches and our bodies and our spirits. And, you know, while we're all waiting for justice to prevail, um, I'd like to offer a word of hope. I end every single one of my spaces with prayer. So no matter what or who you believe in, I think it's safe to say that we could all use a word of encouragement and hope. So, Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for the courage of Dr. Huff, for Lindsay. Uh, for our, our guests, respectively, thank you uh, for these airwaves. Thank you that the earth is yours and the fullness thereof and that we're not going to be afraid and we're not going to back down. And as you reveal and you uncover um, that we do, in fact, move forward to pursue justice and to bring healing to our brothers and sisters um, who have been injured uh, not only psychologically, but emotionally, physically, spiritually as well. So I thank you for your power and your grace and your mercy. And I thank you that this message is amplified and it gets into the ears and the hearts and minds of people who need it. We thank you that you are father and creator over all, over every single cell of our bodies was created perfectly. So I thank you that you're absolutely going to show up and show out in your magnificence and through your Holy Spirit, you will heal people miraculously throughout this globe. Thank you for every scientist who's in this space Thank you for people who have taken the time and sacrificed for our country, worn the uniform in and out. Thank you for Lindsay and her courage as a, as a young woman um, who is traveling the globe to bring truth to people. And I pray that you'll magnify her work as well. In the name of Yeshua, I pray. Amen. Thank you guys very much, Andrew. I appreciate you, sir. And, uh, and we'll be back on Wednesday. Sound good? Sounds good. Cool. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Have a good day.